Hello there, breakers. I am Mike Senior, and I am here with a tinsel-strewn John Witten for our festive <laughs> 20th episode of Project Studio Tea Break. Hello there, John. Have you earned your tea and mince pie break? Oh my goodness, have I ever. <laughs> this tea break is deserved and richly necessary. <laughs> I have just come back from six weeks touring around the rural United Kingdom, seeing embarrassingly more of the country than I did over 10 years of living in London. So is that way, isn't it? Turns out it just keeps on going. <laughs> you can go north, past Finsbury Park, past Cambridge. I know. And there's just more country. And it's just the slaughtered lamb. <laughs> you don't want to spend any nights out on the moors. Well, no, I, I had always assumed not because it was all like abandoned. You might meet a travelling theatre company. <laughs> Well, there we go. I'd always assumed there were monsters in the woods. It turns out those monsters are us. Yeah. Saw some beautiful countryside, spent a fair amount of time in vans and service stations. Mm. Did my fair share of face palms that are going to keep me in embarrassing anecdotes for the next year. We've refilled the well. How about you, Mike? Have you earned this tea break of yours? I have a feeling I've maybe not earned it quite as much as you have, but I, I have been retraining as a support specialist, is what I'm saying to myself. Okay, okay. But a special kind of support specialist a feline support specialist <laughs> which mostly involves sitting around in front of the computer trying to look like I'm busy and pretend that I'm doing some work while actually being a kind of support plinth for a soppy cat <laughs> oh oh bless and the cat's all cuddly. Oh, he's lovely. Yeah, he's very cute and furry. And it was brilliant. Last night, my wife and I were sitting on the sofa and this cat had just parked itself across both our laps. And we must have spent a good five minutes just kind of admiring the cat as it squirmed around and did the useful cute catty things. And then I, I turned to my wife and said, in the days before television, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen that, that Gary Larson cartoon titled In the Days Before Television? I can't imagine there's any Gary Larson cartoon I haven't looked at while sitting on a toilet. But <laughs> and I do love him, but that's where his books tend to wind up. Oh, it's one of my favourites. It's the one where there's this entire suburban family sat around on the sofa just staring at the wall. <laughs> Which I love. Now, I come to you with a, a Christmas gift... I have balm for your soul, John. Now, now I've been tricked this way before, so I don't know if you're about to tell me about a truly infuriating project release, um, that there's a warrant out for my arrest in your city, I, you know. No, I bring you news of internationally renowned veteran Chinese conductor Mu Hai Tang. Mm-hmm. Protégé of uh, Herbert von Karajan during the 80s, uh, principal conductor of orchestras all over Europe. Okay. That's like Portugal, Belgium, Switzerland, Finland, Serbia. He's also been principal conductor of the Queensland Symphony in Australia. God, that's a busy schedule. And uh, he recently conducted several works by Chinese composers at La Scala in Milan hmm. to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. What an unambiguously brilliant thing. And during this concert, in one particularly forceful orchestral tutti, his trousers fell down. Yeah, so I think you got off lightly with your Bonraco puppet twerking episode <laughs> back in episode 12. Oh, God, I'd, I'd managed to forget about that. I'd managed to purge it. At least your boxer shorts weren't actually centre stage. No, they weren't. Oh, no, that is dramatically awful. Also, can I just compliment you on your brilliant use of the phrase 
powerful orchestral tutti. <laughs> Look, I know what it means. You know what it means. It means everyone's playing at the same time. But God, it sounds good. It makes you feel like you're in the know. In the midst of a powerful orchestral tutti, there's sort of nothing else that could happen than trousers falling down. <laughs> it's just got that sort of vibe to the words. Inevitability. You see, one of the crimes of this show is that you always bring something up which sends me straight to YouTube. It's definitely worth seeing. And it's so good because the, the orchestra, they just don't miss a beat. Amazing. And he's just got such style. You know, he, he just casually hoists them back up, refixes the offending belt. <laughs> <laughs> Although he did miss a trick in that his boxer shorts were disappointingly plain and white. <laughs> and I feel you could have trumped him on that count. I think one has a moral obligation in these situations to be wearing red boxer shorts with white polka dots. Yeah. You know, this is the uniform of pants falling down. It's been a long tradition. It should have been a People's Republic of China design. <laughs> flag should have been on there. <laughs> You're right. And it does raise the question of whether this might have been some kind of political protest. Gosh, I hope not for his sake, but... <laughs> but there's another question that, that came to mind, and that is, how do we interpret the fact that the orchestra just didn't miss a beat? You know, either that means they're just total pros, or... And this is equally likely that they're all just dead inside from playing too many Italian operettas. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing can cheer them any longer. <laughs> Although the assistant concertmaster, who you can just see on the left of the frame, does appear to be having difficulty retaining her composure. Because <laughs> she's just kind of trying to turn a page and seems to be on the verge of corpsing, which is good. But I think the third explanation is probably the most likely, mm. which is that fundamentally, most orchestral musicians ignore the conductor most of the time. Mm. <laughs> I mean, really, how important is a conductor? Oh. The orchestra can play the bloody thing without the conductor. I don't think you're wrong because orchestras are bloody amazing. And speaking as someone who's tried to play with an orchestra mm. a few times, the relationship between the orchestra and the conductor is sufficiently complex that... I've been horribly out of time. Oh, right. Because it's all string-led, and there isn't the attack yes. that I'm used to mm. to kind of really give me a grid to snap to. Yep. God, I did an awful, awful job of sticking to it. Well, I'm not sure you, as a dulcimer player, should join this guy on stage, however. <laughs> no? No, you don't think it would be a good double act? Unfortunately, he has form. Oh, wow. You see, back in 2016, at another gala concert, this time in China... Oh, my God. Uh, ..while the female dulcimer soloist was standing up, accepting applause from the audience, he walked on stage towards her, <laughs> slipped, <gasps> and deftly swept the legs from under her. <laughs> oh, no! No! This is royal variety <laughs> show material here. This is absurd. But again, there is beautiful video footage of this. This is a bit spooky at this stage because another one of my face palms involved coming on for a bow onto a stage that was made slippery by a dry ice machine and falling flat on my ass. I worry that this man is some sort of prophetic spirit animal mm. of mine and I have to follow his career now with extreme close attention. <laughs> Speaking of orchestras carrying on despite conductor um, foibles, 
I have a, a friend who plays in a very well-respected London orchestra, the name of which I will give you off-air. and It'll be pixelated in the podcast. The orchestra. Yeah. And um, one of her favourite dinner party stories, they were playing Sibelius' Andante Festivo, which is a beautiful just strings piece. Mm. And this, of course, leaves the woodwinds, the brass, the percussion, leaves them out. Mm. And during one performance on one tour, a flautist actually dozed off during it. <laughs> it's not a very long piece. It's about six minutes long. <laughs> I guess they were all a bit tired and the conductor noticed. Noticed? Absolutely. They noticed this flautist and they actually threw their baton at him. Oh. And then started shouting. Like This is clearly the end of a series of stressful events. Yeah. So you have the conductor throwing things and really, really just hollering at a sleeping flautist. Wow. The strings kept playing. <laughs> the piece continued. And if my violist friend is to be believed, it was one of the better renditions they'd done. <laughs> It didn't suffer at all. Oh, that's brilliant. If there was any difference, so the story goes, they just played it all slightly louder. And we have follow-up from last month's news story about the Cork NTS1. Of course. And I'm afraid I must apologise to Cork because I have been a bit unfair to them. <gasps> oh, no! I said, if you recall, and we made much mockery of the fact that the sound engine wasn't customisable, but actually it is customisable. Oh, gosh, I've lived in fear from the beginning of the podcast of this day. Now, the way it's customisable is through the little USB 3 socket mm -hmm. that allows you to use an open-source software development kit that Korg Supply to program new oscillators and new multi-effects that you can then load up into the synth via a little librarian software package. This all sounds brilliant. And it's the same system and the same librarian that are used for their larger prologue and minilog synths. But it's also open source. It can be modified and fiddled with. It's all open source. You can do it yourself. However... I was waiting for that, however. Programming is not for the faint-hearted. Oh, dear, no. From the FAQs on the site that I should have read better, mm. it said, this is a standard development kit meant for programmers. Yeah. And not a neophyte-friendly high-level editor. <laughs> La-dee-da. <laughs> it's aimed at experienced users, so we will not be offering technical support beyond the provided documentation. <gasps> no! So it's clearly a, you're on your own, here you go. You're absolutely on your own. If this is impossible for you to work with, it's not our fault. It's your fault for not being clever enough. But I mean, to be fair, they are aiming it at a target audience of people who are technically capable enough to use a small screwdriver. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying there's already some self-selection going on here. And also, there are people who are now selling third-party libraries for Prolog and Minilog, and you can reuse some of those for the NTS-1. Okay. I think there are six developers currently listed. Some of them are donationware. Okay, good. But some of them are actually more expensive than the NTS-1 hardware. Incredible. The snake has eaten its own tail. So my apologies to Cork for for misrepresenting their product. <laughs> and my apologies to our listeners for missing out on another brilliant thing to make fun of. <laughs> now, the one thing I didn't check, and I realised, and I meant to check, mm. is whether the SDK kit allows you to reprogram the LED display. <laughs> <laughs> Which surely must be top of the priority list. <laughs> This month, we had the Audio Engineering Society show in New York, so, of course, it was once more a field day for the Project Studio newsroom. <laughs>
<laughs> Mike was there in his trilby, in his long... Oh, what are those long coats that they wear in New York all the time? Oh, good question. Private detective Trench coat. Is that a trench coat? Oh, um... Wow, I have just murdered the rhythm. <laughs> I have murdered the energy that you started this out with. I'm, I'm really sorry. You were coming in hot. All I wanted to do was a quick description of New Yorker apparel, and, and here we are. Okay, back to you, Mike. <laughs> the first thing my eyes lighted on was a plug-in from New Gen Audio called Sigmod mm. that's designed to add various routing and utility functions to your DAW, like MS encoding, decoding, mono switching, left-right swap, okay. independent left and right channel processing, safety limiting, frequency splitting. Okay. And I just, after I'd read most of the press release, I said to myself, um... Isn't that like all the stuff that Reaper does already? <laughs> so can, and it's like $50 where you can get Reaper for $60. Absolutely. I mean, to be fair, apparently the most recent update allows you to wrap like VST2 and AU plugins for use in other DAWs. So that's kind of a nice extra thing. But there's also like DDMF's meta plugin at roughly the same price that <laughs> has a, like a fully modular routing structure inside. So I was like, yep, irrelevant products. And we'll gloss over that. <laughs> More seriously, though, the software developer SoftTube, who do lots of funky plugins, okay. uh, back in 2014, released a hardware controller called the Console One, which is a very nicely engineered kind of premium control surface for plugin control. Okay. Which they shipped with a variety of different analog channel emulations that map perfectly onto all the controllers. And it's got 20 channels worth of channel selection. It's, it's nicely done. Great. The only thing that was missing up to now was basically faders. This is all pots. Yeah, it's just a, like a knob controller. And the knobs... <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. I know, I know in this line of work, I need to move past that. But... No, I, I have to own that one. It was just the wrong podcast to, to make that slip. <laughs> no, tell me more, please, about this knob controller. <laughs> so... The different um, controls then map onto the different controls on the software, so you get this direct connection between your hardware and your software control. Mm. It, it's got a very good reputation for speeding up workflow and making it feel a bit more like an analog mixing experience. Okay. But up to now, it has included no fader control or pan control. So this year at the AES show, SoftTube have finally come out with the Console One Fader, which is a very similarly sized box, I think it's identically sized actually, with full length touch sensitive motorized faders. It has nice multiple uses for the faders, so you can switch them to adjust like channel drive, like high pass and low pass filters, different send levels. Okay. Um, and you, you can create kind of VCA groups within the controller architecture, so you can control like 15 faders from a single one on its special layer mode fader level. Amazing. There was quite a lot of excitement about it. Um, of course, my uh, Project Studio T break. Um, Newshound's nose went sniffling when uh, oh, good. when I noticed that um, this is slightly different than most fader controllers mm -hmm. because it has not eight faders but ten. That's, that's kind of surprising to hear. Any any idea what drove this decision? Well, of course, my initial thought, as I'd expect of anyone in the industry, was nah, nah, but it goes up to eleven. <laughs> Surely there must be another fader control coming along. That has 11 faders, surely. Yes. Uh, but anyway, putting that aside for the moment, the guy who was uh, being uh, interviewed about it for the uh, news item, mm -hmm. uh, he was saying that um, basically this comes down to the fact that because the original plug-in controller thing had 20 channel select buttons, mm. it didn't make sense for them to work in banks of eight, which is the more typical number, yeah. for the fader controller, because then it would kind of cut across the channel selections on the other controller. Oh, of course. So you wanted them 
to be as compatible as possible. Well, exactly. But then beyond that, I just found it amusing that they were trying to justify it in some other non-practical ways. Okay. Like, his, his other justification was, well, it's more intuitive to think in terms of banks of 10 channels when you're scrolling through a large project, which seems a bit threadbare to me in terms of... <laughs> <laughs> I did hear one... I can't remember where I read it now, but there was one commenter who basically said, well, I mean, you've got 10 fingers, so why not have 10 faders? <laughs> and that just seems to be such a bloody stupid argument. I like that. I mean, when was the last time you felt restricted by the fact that you could only adjust eight faders at the same time and not ten? <laughs> really? I mean... Yeah, I had these two perfectly functional fingers that just aren't allowed to participate in the music-making process. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, by the same token, I mean, surely the fader caps should be contoured differently for the two middle ones for your thumbs. That's a new breed of controller, but I am kind of into it. Slightly diagonalised, if that were the argument. It, I mean, it's the same reason why guitars have five strings. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Exactly as they should. <laughs> An octave has ten notes. Flutes have ten buttons. <laughs> Harps have, you know, equally five strings. And only two pedals. And only two pedals. I know! How, you know, what octopuses do you think are playing this music? It's just such a silly argument. Admittedly, I didn't catch Softube making that claim. But it is, there's another question that came up with the whole idea of the number of faders. Is that Okay. They did mention that this fader controller could be used in multiples and daisy-chained. Mm. And this is quite a common thing with hardware fader controllers, is that you can have several banks of them and then get a larger channel count. Okay. If you have, say, eight arms. <laughs> just to follow the logic there. But this thing has not just the faders on it, but it has various assignment and transport buttons and a little other encoder or whatever on the side of it. There's extra hardware. Mm. And the silly thing about the idea of having multiples of this is that, of course, you're duplicating that hardware every time you do it. Oh, interesting. That there's not any specific expander module, it would just be using the same thing again. Mm. So you'd be spending money on stuff you wouldn't really use. And it also begs the question then, if they did introduce one that was just faders, mm -hmm. would they make it smaller, at which point it wouldn't be compatible with the same size of the existing ones? <laughs> or would they put more faders on it and have to come up with another silly reason why it had more faders on it? A reason why, in fact, a total of 22 is to be preferred. Then, of course, that would make a nonsense of their, like, 20-channel assignment thingy, wouldn't it? So I think they couldn't put faders there. They'd have to find something else. I think just a small flat screen showing funny GIFs would sell it to me. <laughs> or just a little space where you can put your mouse. <laughs> that, that, a little hook that you can hang a coat on. <laughs> there you go. Cup holder. Cigarette lighter. There's a lot of things. <laughs> a Bluetooth connector. Not to anything in particular, but you can just connect your Bluetooth to it. Or like some of those buttons that like they used to have on the SSL consoles. Oh, yeah. Because they always had more spaces for buttons than you usually needed. And they printed up various fake buttons like, holy sh and um, eject and all that kind of stuff. I like that idea. That could work for me. Or, you know, maybe I've got a young niece, young nephew, mm. the absolute bomb of a toy in their house are just these coloured plastic things which you spin them and they make rattly noises. Yeah. I can think of a few times mid-large mix project where I could have used a brightly coloured bit of plastic to just <laughs> bat at with my hand for two or three minutes. One of those stress squish toys. That's not a bad idea. Or maybe they could just make that the front panel there is all squishy. So you kind of just <laughs> need the front panel. <laughs> Well, that'd be a material science challenge, wouldn't it? It would, but thoroughly, thoroughly worth it.
here is my questioning of your questioning yeah. of the intuitivity-ness Intuitude. of 10 bank channels. Mm. So let's say you're working on a 64-channel project. Yeah. And let's say you're working on an 8-fader hardware controller. Uh, and so you've got faders 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and banks 1 through whatever. Yeah. You want to get to channel 39. What position on what bank is number 39? Oh, well, that would be uh, channel whatever, 5 of a, an 8-channel thing on its fifth bank. I got 7 of 4. Yeah, it's 7 of 5. <laughs> so we've just proved their point <laughs> in one easy example. After giggling at them for <laughs> it. It's completely undermined our own derision. <laughs> Congratulations, Softview, <laughs> for a product sucker punch. But but I, I think I can claw back some derision. Okay, are we going to stumble back up from the mats? Go for it. The derision I'm going to claw back is, okay, so you've got 10 faders, so you get this intuitive control of a multiple channels at once. Mm. You get one pan control. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we need not worry for our derision. There's still opportunity. <laughs> Also in the news this month was pioneering research into machine learning from the University of Arizona. That suggests that the ideal failure rate for learning purposes is one in seven. <laughs> so I think that we need to up our game a bit. We need to actually fail more often. Speak for yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, so you've been bringing your averages up. Well, dish the dirt. Absolutely. I have been working hard. I've been putting in the grind to bring up my failure rate uh, <laughs> in the hope that one day I will learn something from it. Excellent. Which brings me to, to this month's facepalm. <laughs> now, a long-term tour, or even, you know, this is a six week, so not, not overly long, but it's always going to be fertile, fertile ground. Mm. And I could tell you about the time when I foolhardily took on a bass part, oh. which I learned to play, but I also didn't think about the fact that it was coming after an extremely tiring guitar part oh, right. for my right hand. So I wound up just <laughs> playing double bass with a fist. I went through my fingers one at a time, then groups at a time, and they all just failed on me. They, I had oh, blisters wow. all over after that show. Oh, no. And 24 hours until the next show. So I could tell you about snapping strings. I could tell you about oh, the dear. different and exciting keys we all started songs in yep. over, over the course of that tour. In this show, which was... I would say about 75% written at the time of our first show. Um, <laughs> well, that, I mean, that ups the average, isn't it? <laughs> You're losing your edge. I could tell you about our adventures with the Honourable Lord Lieutenant of the West Midlands. Well, yes. Um, but I fear that would be actually treasonous. Right. So what I'm going to tell you about is why it's so important to keep civilian clothes and costume clothes mm. entirely separate. Oh, right. Completely separate. They have to be different worlds, ideally. <laughs> 
So um, one night I didn't do that. Okay. So uh, just to set the scene, we're all wearing sort of slacks and suspenders and these kind of old-timey cotton shirts. It's very kind of turn-of-the-century Appalachia. Oh, yeah. It's a great look. Yes, yeah. Now, I am feeling peckish at the interval. We haven't had time for dinner. So I slip out to a vending machine. Mm. And I treat myself. Oh, right. I get a big bag of what I'm just for now going to call mystery candy. <laughs> okay, I open up, I have a couple, I share it around. And then I realise, oh, we need to be back on. The interval's over. Oh, no. So on we go. The Ely of Doom is... I, I'm getting it. Oh, my. Go on. <laughs> we'll compare and contrast outcomes here. What, I, what I'm imagining might be happening and what actually happened. Go on, then. Well, we play the first couple of songs. Okay. And then... It's a very choreographed second half. Right. Uh, and we're all swapping instruments all the time. And there comes a point where the bass was meant to be grabbed. So the, the person who just plays the bass just walks off and the, the grabber person needs to be there to just take it from them. The walking off happens. The grabber's not there in that moment. I swoop in to try and save the day. I manage to catch the neck of the bass in the nick of time. Whoa. But in so doing, the jerkiness of this motion oh. knocks the large bag of candies out my pocket. <laughs> it lands on the floor and empties itself. Now, now here is my question for you you in a quiet otherwise calm <laughs> otherwise contemplative moment of the show like what is the worst candy i could possibly have bought from sonic perspective visual sonic <laughs> reputationally there are various options <laughs> there, there are I'll, I'll just cycle through a few do do i mean my first thought was that actually you'd bought chocolate buttons mm -hmm. and that they'd got warm in your pocket and it kind of stuck them to your leg <laughs> and that you <laughs> might have and that maybe even the packet might have had a leak and you'd have had a spreading brown stain <laughs> As is so often the case, Mike, when I'm confronted with where you thought my story was going, I'm confronted with just how lucky I am that it went the way it did. So I'm delighted that we've avoided that truly horrific situation. Now, if it weren't a vending machine, if you'd been to your local sweet shop mm -hmm. and it had been like aniseed balls, we could have had these kind of slapstick <laughs> people rolling about. Absolutely. Feet kicking up in the air. <laughs> Maybe something even like Skittles might have done that. But I think I might actually put my money on Maltesers. Because not only is it round so it'll roll everywhere, but if you tread on one, it makes a satisfyingly loud crunch. <laughs> All brilliant guesses. Like, the correct answer is Maltesers. Oh, no! <laughs> was... <laughs> you are so right in every particular. Okay, because we are on a polished wood floor and those things are engineered <laughs> to perfection. They are perfectly spherical, so they roll. Everywhere. They roll in every direction. They create a perfectly uniform covering <laughs> over the entire stage. Was it like a big bag or was it one of the small snack-sized ones? I'm a go big or go home sort of person. This was a shareable sack of Maltesers. And I'd had a couple. Castmates had had a couple, but fear not, the vast majority were now strewn, had been left in a bag in my pocket. Something that wouldn't even oh. have been possible if I'd been wearing my civvy clothes, but slacks have gigantic pockets. Oh, God, yeah. So, oh, wow. There they were, all over the stage. <laughs> Now, I know for a fact that if I had been in the audience in that moment, I would have immediately lost all focus on the 
quote-unquote play and the quote-unquote plot <laughs> that was quote-unquote going on. You'd have been counting the Maltesers. <laughs> Absolutely. My sole focus for the rest of the two hours would have been, oh, who's going to step on them? Are you going to try and kick them away? No. So that was a very, very frightening moment in time. Oh. It has a happy ending after that heart-stopping moment. Oh, fabulous. Which is that I happen to be on stage with some unflappable, consummate performers who were really good at accents. So in their deep southern drawl, the um, the woman who had just let go of the bass and who I was trying to jump up and rescue when this happened, just berated me in character. Oh, wow, fabulous. For bringing my candies onto the stage. <laughs> And she sent someone to go look for a broom. And it was a running joke for the rest of the night. Oh, brilliant. That I was kind of snacky John. <laughs> and, you know, references to that gig where I just brought a sandwich in my pocket and how it had leaked all over everything. My God, actors are good at this sort of thing. I was going to say, talk about a yes and. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. 100% acknowledge. <laughs> That's proper pro. So that that is my... Face palm of the month. So it's uh, melt on your face, not in your palm this month. <laughs> no, no, Mike. This month is a story of when my balls dropped. <laughs> and what self-respecting Christmas episode mm. could go by without a festive Q&A? Indeed. So this one comes from a Mr. Psychmenia. Mr. Psychmenia. <laughs> of Munich. <laughs> nice to meet you, Mr. Me. Oh, no! <laughs> so. I just said it. Um, okay, yes. Go ahead. This question is, what are your very favourite and very least favourite Christmas bits of music? Because mm. we're coming into that season where it's like a perma-loop of Christmas classics. Ooh. Christmas tunes. Wow. What can I say? There's a lot to hate. Let's start on a high. What are the good ones? I mean, those, those are going to be fewer and further between, surely. It's true. Well, okay. Wolfpack's Christmas in LA is obviously a banger. Cool. Ditto. What was the Darkness's Christmas single? Oh, yeah. It was something about them. Don't let the bells in. That was it. That was it. Oh, my God. That was a brilliant tune. <laughs> that doesn't get played enough. <laughs> what? I just keep coming through these bands that were big when I was growing up, which were amazing. I feel so bad for the youth of today. Mm. Um, so those two are up there with my favourites. How about you? What have you got in your top list? I do have a definite soft spot for the biggest single of all time, White Christmas. Okay. For a couple of reasons. One of them is that uh, when I first started singing like a cappella music at school, mm, that mm. was one of the first arrangements we did. Oh, that's nice. And there was a lovely arrangement of it. There was a tenor bit where it slightly shifted the, the tune. So it went, um, uh, and the treetops glisten and children listen to him. Oh, yay! It was a lovely tingly moment. Oh, that's beautiful. So I have such a soft spot for that. But also because I wrote about it for Mixed Review and so I had a really close close listen to the original Bing Crosby recording mm -hmm. and there's a wonderful moment at the beginning of it that you may not have consciously noticed mm. but if you listen to it you'll notice that when he starts singing I'm dreaming of a white the first phrase it starts really low in level mm. and then it gets a bit too loud and then it comes down to a reasonable level huh and basically that is the sound of some guy in the control booth going oh my god we can't hear Bing <laughs> leaping across the room <laughs> grabbing the fader <laughs> 
because it was all done live. Oh my God. So I have such fun with that. I cannot wait to re-listen to that. That's just brilliant. Also of me at the top, and this is a controversial one. Okay. There are lots of people who are wrong regarding this, but... Mm. Christmas carols. Okay. As a lover of choral music, as someone who lives in choral music, the David Wilcox Descants, Mm. which I promise is the most pretentious thing I'm going to say all episode, (laughs) the David Wilcox Descants are just utter sublimity. And what is even more distressingly pretentious about this is that I know exactly what you're talking about. As a former choir boy. There you go. So I know them all back to front and upside down. So for anyone who's spent their youth, unlike us, like, I don't know, smoking and flirting and things. Doing cool stuff. Doing cool stuff. These carols will be sung. You know, every verse has the same beautiful but blockish harmony, which the organ will also play. And then you get to the last verse. Mm. And on the last verse, everyone sings the tune. And the organ just plays the tune in like nine octaves. <laughs> it's a very powerful statement. Everyone except the Sopranos. Mm. And the Sopranos will jump on this proper counter melody. And it's just these two things that are happening. Mm. These descants weren't normally part of the original composition. Um, so different versions of them have been made. And the best versions that anyone has ever made uh, is by a man called David Wilcox. Oh, totally. And I cannot hear them without curling up in a little ball of painful bliss. Yeah. Oh my God. The one I would recommend people listen to to get the utter concept of what's great about these is his descant to Oh Come All Ye Faithful. Oh my God. The bit halfway through the descant, mm. you hit this chord that previously was always a consonant chord, and then it hits this really wacky kind of seventh or something. And it's <laughs> kind of like, Oh, I like that. And as a singer in the congregation, singing the main tune, you've got to concentrate on what you're singing because you've got to hold your tune against the organ and the descant that are doing other things. So it's one of these great moments of tension. You mean glory to God. And it just totally pushes it out of key. I think so, yeah. This is just a general choral descant love in here. (laughs) (laughs) This bit of the podcast might not make the cut. And that's fine. But I'm also going to share my favourite bit of David Wilcox's Christmas Carol Descants. Now, I love O Come With You Faithful. Yeah. But the very best for me has got to be Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Yeah. And the reason is that it has that same thing. It has like a really crunchy, dissonant moment quite near to the end. Mm. And it's on the second to last line. Yes. Born to raise the sons of earth. And you get this lovely minor second. Mm. Then it kind of resolves and you think, wow, gorgeous. Now we just home and dry. But then the last line arrives. Hark the hair. Yes. Minor chord, nine, eight. The organ is like down in octaves right in your gut. And I can barely keep my feet when that one arrives. It is the closest to a religious experience that I experience. In a church. (laughs) In a church. It is searing. It is paint stripping. It is magnificent and to do it in two voices yeah you know with two vocal lines yeah is just absurd to me oh i'm totally on board with that so there's a mini jam for me there as well <laughs> okay so from those olympian heights mm-hmm. those christmas crackers <laughs> what are the christmas turkeys very well asked there's a lot aren't there are there any that you hear it come on and you just grind your teeth it's enough to make you switch stations on your radio um you remember radio it was that thing before I... spotify that didn't have quite as much choice <laughs> 
For me, Paul McCartney's simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Oh, yeah, that is pretty bad, actually. You're right. There's this really weird Paddy synth in the background, which I feel like someone just brought into the studio that day and was like, we, we have to use this in, in at least one track this year or we can't get a tax rebate on it. <laughs> and so they just kind of bodged it in. It's very out of place. Yeah. It feels like a cynical cash grab of a song and I will hear it at least a hundred times between now and December 25th. I really don't like Last Christmas. Wham. Oh, you know what? I'm with you there. It's a bad part of the 80s. Just horridly cheesy and everything. And the worst of all, I had to record a, an acapella arrangement of it for a, a Christmas band I was working with. Mm-hmm. And then one of my daughters heard that recording that we'd done and fell in love with it. And so she <laughs> then wanted to sing it in a Christmas concert. So I've kind of been dragged kicking and screaming into appreciation of last Christmas. <laughs> Although, to be fair, another one of the Christmas songs that I really don't like okay. is um, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas. <gasps> oh, controversial. Oh, yeah. Now... Do you disagree that it's a vocal powerhouse performance without which we would not have Beyonce? As a performer, I think Mariah Carey is absolutely to be respected. Mm. But I think that's one of those things that's so hideously seasonal cash-in that I can never distance myself from that. Right, okay. And the only thing that has saved this song, has redeemed it for me, is this same Christmas band. Oh, yeah. Who did a reggae version of it. (laughs) No. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I'm going to have to send you a link to it. It's really, really, really good. That's upsetting, I think. But also, I, I do desperately need to hear it now. It's extremely fine. I can one-up that, though. I, for, for cynical, annoying Christmas cash grab, mm-hmm. I give you, I wish it could be Christmas every day. Okay. And all I need you to do in order to decide I'm right is think of that intro. You're just in co-op, you just need some nectarines, and and you want to be five minutes in and out, and then over the tannoy, you hear, It's Christmas! Oh, God, yeah. And imagine that drop in your heart, that very deep, deep sadness. I did wonder a while ago whether we could actually subsidise some sort of Christmas charity by having a sleigh bell tax. <laughs> Tell me more. Well, I mean, think about it. Pretty much any Christmas hit mm-hmm. feels the need to have a sleigh bell on it. At least one. A simple sleigh bell tax. Just imagine the money that would bring in for good causes. You could not be all right. And might banish the sleigh bell from future commercial productions, perhaps. And would send it away forever to kind of a darker and quieter realm. This sounds like absolutely for the greater good. It is a season of giving, after all. Now, There's a huge amount of um, nostalgia muddying the waters here. So I ask you, what is the worst Christmas song that you like? That I like? Mm. Whoa, wow. Your best worst Christmas song. Things that I like that are bad. Oh, I've got one. Yes. And again, this comes from the nostalgia of having done arrangements of this when I was at school. Mm -hmm. Is uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? (laughs) (laughs) And partly because of an inbuilt snobbery that most people don't know the little introduction to the song. Oh, right. Which goes, you know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, da-da-da-da-da-da, and don't know all the words, (laughs) but do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Dum-dum-dum. That's brilliant. And then it goes into the song so i yeah i have i do have a soft spot for that and that's it's not a tremendously good song it's got to be said i think for me and now this will not go any further than us and our dedicated listeners i'm putting it this late <laughs> in the episode in the hope that just the mention of last christmas will have had them changing stations <laughs> this has got to be the hope i could tell you about santa baby okay 
which I can happily sit through, even though, God, it's a weird infantilizing song when you properly listen to it. <laughs> oh, yeah. You don't want to think too hard. But my true answer is something much more shameful. Oh, excellent. It's Michael Bublé's It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas. Oh, wow. I know, I know, I know. And I can't even really play the nostalgia card because that was released in the last couple of years. (laughs) But you know what? It's Michael Bublé in general. He's just so easy to listen to. Yeah. It goes down so smooth. It's a hot toddy of a song. He's the Baileys of... Performance. <laughs> Actually, with apologies to hot toddies. You know it makes you look a bit girly. You know it's probably not very good for you. Yeah, yeah. But you're going to drink it anyway. Look, no one, no one is going to claim that what attracts them to Bailey's is the sophisticated palate, is the mix of challenging yet complimentary flavours. It's just mm. creamy and nice. Yeah. Until you finish the bottle and take a good hard look at your life. <laughs> Gosh, this, this metaphor works upsettingly well. Now, John, being as you are a youth of today, I'm sure you will be more than familiar with the towering artistic presence of Selena Gomez. Mm. But for the benefit of our less plugged into the zeitgeist listeners, let's recap briefly. Mm-hmm. Star of long-running Disney sitcom Wizards of Waverly Place and smash hit films such as Ramona and Beezus, Another Cinderella Story and, <laughs> and Spring Breakers. Right, yes. Oscar contenders. Mm -hmm. This is a lady who has had five top ten albums in the last ten years. Blimey. She's also had five top ten singles. Wow. Including Come and Get It, The Heart Wants What It Wants, Good For You, Same Old Love and Hands To Myself. Blimey. Quite a go-getter. Now, let me ask you... Has any of that output impinged on your life in any way whatsoever? You know what? I was really expecting at least a couple of, oh, I didn't know that was by her. Cool. (laughs) But no. Nope. Honestly, not a single one. Me neither. You neither. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Fundamentally, this is a lady who has been squarely on the B list for (laughs) 10 years. Oh, flyby. But you can't but admire her perseverance and patience because... Just recently, she came out with a kind of a cross-genre hit with Kygo. She sang the top line of It Ain't Me. Okay. She's in the latest kind of Bill Murray comedy film zombie thing called uh, The Dead Don't Die. Okay. And this is the jam this month. Her latest single is one of the best songs I've heard all year. All right. It is absolutely cracking. Remember, this is the same year that I was raving about Billie Eilish, so the bar is super high. (laughs) It is, and equally high is your youth relevance this year. (laughs) I'm basking in it while it lasts. (laughs) You are so on the pulse this year. Mm, Um, mm. You were kind enough to send me the YouTube link. It's got something like 150 million views. It's topped the Billboard chart for the first time in her career. It's a song called Lose You to Love Me. I hadn't heard this song because I've been on a tour of rural England but I have just heard it just now I I popped it up on YouTube and the intro took me completely by surprise but this is your jam I want to hear what you loved about this song well I mean there are loads of things to love about this it's one of those situations where they've taken a really really stripped back arrangement and yet as you listen to it you appreciate that 
every bit of that arrangement has been really, really carefully worked on. Mm-hmm. Even though on, on first listen you think, oh, there's nothing to that. You come back to it and each time you're hearing something new and something interesting about it. Mm. The harmonies are simple on the face of it. And yet, if you look at them carefully, you can see there are some fabulous dissonances and barely resolved suspensions. Mm. The phrase writing for the melody is fabulous. You know, it's kind of these halting little fragments that then kind of keep crossing phrase lengths and keep crossing section boundaries and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the arrangement is genuinely arresting. You know, you get these pizzicato and bass synth thing for the second verse that you just weren't expecting at all. Yes. It's very restrained in that there's so much that's left until later in the production. Like the, the, the big backing vocals thing in the final chorus is genuinely uplifting because you haven't had it up to that point. Mm-hmm. There's just so much good stuff about it. And also, I mean, the sound design and all these mixing moments in there right. are so beautifully done. There's this a bit in the second verse mm-hmm. where you suddenly get this weird kind of drop and you lose the bass for the first couple of beats and it just goes to backing vocals. and It's just a fabulous mixing stunt. There's still, everything is, is there that makes this a great production for me. Ah, it sounds like a full smorgasbord. I was writing about this for a mixed review because I was so excited about it. And so I lo- obviously you look around and see if anyone else has written about it. Mm. And the one thing that I did slightly take issue with was that there was a one of the reviews uh, from the Vulture website the guy said this it was a gamble trusting that the lyrics to this song would sell it on their own but it was a wise move and actually to me yes the lyrics aren't bad but they would be absolutely nothing without <laughs> all the other stuff. And it, I feel really kind of slightly galled mm. because I know that there's such fabulous songwriting, production, arrangement, harmony, mixing work behind it. And it kind of illustrates to some extent that for a lot of listeners, what they can conceive about the music is where they'll assume its value is. That's why so many people go, oh, what a great singer she is because actually she's got a really good song and a really good arrangement because that's the only hook they can hang it on. Right. And it feels to me like he's hanging the value of the song on the hook of the lyrics when Mm -hmm. actually it's everything else that is brilliant. (laughs) Everything surrounding the words. Interesting. So it just makes me even more evangelistic about Mm -hmm. it because I want to kind of say, no, it's not just the lyrics that are good. It's all this (laughs) other stuff. It sounds like a bit of a version of that Dolly Partonism. Okay. That it costs a huge amount of money to look this cheap. Yeah. That it takes a gigantic <laughs> amount of careful production to sound this stripped down. Absolutely. It's much more difficult to make something that sounds like there's nothing happening than to make something where there's loads of stuff happening. But still holds attention. And this is totally a case in point for that. Like the bit up into the final chorus, mm. they leave it for like a good like two seconds of it just slowly ramping up this reverse envelope thing. Mm. And when the final <laughs> chorus hits, they don't put a fill, they don't put any little rhythm, they don't do anything. And it's like, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then it happens. <laughs> Brilliant. (laughs) This might be a first in jams. This piece did not grab me as much as it grabbed you. Oh, right. It worked, sort of did the job. The very beginning was the most exciting moment for me because just with these very open piano chords, I wasn't sure where our beat was. So when she started singing, I thought she was going fully off grid. Mm. And then eventually I kind of got into the groove of the song. I thought she was really pulling around the beat. Okay. So I went back and I listened to the beginning again and I realised, no, no, she's singing absolutely in rhythm. It's just, as you said, it's this very fragmentary rhythm across the chords. So that was interesting to me. Mm, mm. I enjoyed those kind of moments of bringing in her voice an octave below, underneath, and these kind of, these bass, these kind of slowed down bass drums or however you're getting them. 
But and maybe it was because I watched it with the video, which is really bad yeah. and low quality and awful and just dull and stupid. Well, the video, you will be unsurprised to learn, was done entirely on an iPhone 11. I'm surprised they went up to 11. <laughs> I don't know. So, so watching that with the video, I wish I'd either been listening to Adele right. or Magic Clouds. Because it felt like it was straddling this kind of poppy junction between the two mm. um, without quite being either. Her not being as good a singer as Adele. Yeah, I get that. And not featuring the production as much as Magic Clouds would have done. Maybe this is part of the reason why I have a particular connection with this production is because it brings together a perfect storm of people who've been working in recent productions that I really like. Oh, interesting. Like one of the songwriters is Julia Michaels who is an artist in her own right. Okay, yes. Once you know that, the connection between this song and her biggest single, which is called Issues, becomes absolutely obvious because of all this like pizzicato and the, and the fragmentary vocal structure and stuff. Mm. She did another one where she um, did the top line for Clean Bad Lids, I Miss You. Yes. And there, the phrase structure is even more similar to what they're doing in this song. And so you kind of think, okay, so that's the Julia Michaelsism bit of it. Yeah. Then you've got all the sound design stuff and that pitch-dropped vocal thing. If I were going to ask you what other artists might have been involved to do that kind of stuff, what might you guess, given my preferences? I don't think I could pin it down. I, I love it. I really like it. If I say it's ubiquitous, it's not in any way pejorative. I think it is such a fun, moody what's-it. Could it be Billy? Did Billy get involved? Uh, Laser-guided as always. Not Billy, but her brother, Phineas O'Connell, is credited <laughs> as additional production. Right, of course, her producer. And I can easily imagine the bits that I would say, oh, that sounds like Phineas, that sounds like Phineas. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, right, tick, tick, tick. And then on top of that, to some extent, maybe this is even the most appealing bit of it to me as a tech nerd, mm. is that the mix is by a guy called Serban Ganea. Do you know Serban Ganea? I don't know Serban Ganea, no. No one really does because he doesn't give interviews. He's a <laughs> tremendously elusive and mysterious person in the music industry. But he's pretty much the biggest mixing engineer on the planet. Oh, wow. He mixes loads of huge, huge hits. He's ridiculously successful at this thing. <laughs> and he is brilliant. He is genuinely a, an incredible mix engineer. And I'm a bit of a stalker of his, a bit like with Al Schmidt. <laughs> you know, I kind of stalk his mixes and I'm always interested in how he, what he's doing. And I genuinely didn't realise that this was one of his mixes until I looked up the credits. Mm -hmm. Because I normally associate him with these really kind of beat-driven, upfront, in-your-face mixes. Right. And then here, he's done something that is really beautiful and open and kind of artistically sensitive in a way that I had not given him credit for in the past. This guy could do actually anything at all. Oh my God, this guy is even more incredible than I thought he was. <laughs> and again, once I know that, I'm thinking, oh, that bit sounds like it was Serban Ganea who came up with that idea. And it, that bit sounds like it was Serban Ganea. Mm. So, so it's like, as I listen through, I'm kind of... It's almost like seeing old friends kind of all coming together. It was like a super group. To be honest, we are such context-reliant beasts. That warms me a little to this song because it takes it out of my assumption, which is that it had been some cynical producer just kind of picking and choosing from a bunch of these great production tricks that he'd been hearing around mm. to it being people who actually do this stuff, people who live this particular bit of the style or that particular bit of the style, as you say, coming together in a supergroup. Or it's a bit like if you get a jazz band that's made up of all these old pros mm. and they're not necessarily doing anything particularly flashy, but they're all just so good that the real connoisseurs just love the subtle interactions between them. They're all just so on it. They're fundamentally really experienced and really competent and they're all playing it quite cool. 
and the quality is just coming through regardless. You're right, there's no single overarching voice and whatever else you could say about the arrangement, no one could call it um, crowded. No, no. Thank you for exposing me to that one. I'm going to have a couple more listens because even if it doesn't become my sound of the summer, there's clearly a lot to hear in it. That's totally a shoe-in for my next Voice of Germany audition. <laughs> oh, God, yes. God, yes. But you have to recreate the experience of watching the video by just running towards and away from the judges as you sing, mm. constantly wiping your face with your hand. Changing facial expressions incongruously. Precisely. But do you know what's slightly tragic? <laughs> we now have a very sticky table. What? Because we've just popped a big pile of jam straight on the table without putting anything beneath it. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, indeed. <laughs> this is a disaster. <laughs> so the best we can hope for now is to get an emergency spatula, <laughs> a spot of toast, and see if we can't rescue the situation. Quickly. So with that in mind... <laughs> Oh, sounding pretty good. It was. Now, I've learned from my mistakes, so I'm going to say exactly what this is. This is a small ceramic bird whistle from Calvillo, Mexico, uh, being scraped by a uh, Gujarati uh, Jew's harp. <laughs> and, and that's what we went for today. Oh, wow. Speaking of which, we've still got that mystery toast foley to figure. I have a couple of contenders here that I found that I remembered using. Oh, okay. Could it have been mm -hmm. a slowly rolled maraca thus? It could have been because you haven't used a maraca before. Oh, in that case, that might well be it. And what's your other option? I'll do you the sound, then describe it. Okay. Do you want to take a stab before I reveal this one? It sounds a bit like a washboard. It does a bit, doesn't it? It is, in fact, a stereo small-to-large jack converter Okay. being scraped against the grill of a blue snowball USB microphone. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I like to keep these things specific. We can do a compare and contrast. Yes. Against our mystery toast foley. We'll get forensic about this. We will find the answers. We will dig deep enough. The truth is out there. Am I right in understanding that we have had um, some very generous support in bringing Project Studio Tea Break to the ears of our loyal listeners today? Well, as it happens, yes, we have. My goodness, how generous. And I think this is one that may appeal to you. Oh. As every owner of a Project Studio knows, managing all your cable runs is a definite hassle. Mm. But there are reasons for keeping your cables tidy and well-managed beyond making it look nice. Oh, yeah. It's now a well-established understanding that you've got to keep your mains, your data, and your audio cables apart from each other so you don't get like data corruption, you don't get unwanted audio interference. Absolutely. But this is an old truism, and to some extent it's old news, because, of course, we're now greatly reliant on uh, a lot of wireless connection technology. Mm. So German cable management specialist Walter Schnee has decided to bring this concept up to date for the wireless age. Brilliant. I cannot wait. It's his new technology to keep your Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, mobile phone and wireless mains signals from interfering with each other, to keep them separate <laughs> within the studio space. Amazing. So they don't get tangled, you don't get problems with uh, data and or audio integrity. They don't get wrapped around each other. And it works via a series of proprietary um, ferrite core modules called Schnee Coils. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> 
Of course it does. With uh, with special induction windings that target the different wireless signals. <laughs> and they're colour-coded to show which one's which. <laughs> and all you need to do is place a set of Schnee coils. Oh, my God. Okay. Along the route where you want each wireless signal to run. And then it'll keep all of those wireless signals carefully routed in different places so you don't get problems. Mm-hmm. You can get them in sets of eight for a special introductory price of $79. Or for Hi-Fi customers, it's $559.99. <laughs> is, is that all? Uh, well, I mean, introductory price. Well, I'm not sure if any of our listeners, or indeed myself, can afford to not take them up on this incredibly generous offer. You know, you'll be saving money, saving hassle, mm. and no more tangled Wi-Fis. <laughs> I have to know how long snake coils took you. <laughs> I just, I, I have a desperate need. What did you did you begin with that and then work backwards? No, I, I did go through various options on the way there. I mean, initially I was thinking I'd have it as just the name of the person uh-huh. and came up with Sinead Coil. <laughs> <laughs> but Sinead Coil is not bad. It's an enjoyable mouthful. But I think it's seeing as we were in Germany, Walter Schnee should be the one. Yeah, and I'm delighted that you didn't see it coming as well. It's- <laughs> <laughs> Always best. I didn't in the slightest. It's oh god, we are pure. I'm sorry, I'll read that again this week with our <laughs> fake names and occasional misreadings. <laughs> and it only remains for me to give out our various socials. Please do drop us a tweet on twitter.com slash PSTB tweets uh, and drop us a book <laughs> on facebook.com forward slash PSTB books. We would love to hear from you. How can people email us, Mike? Send your emails to tbreak at projectstudiotbreak.com. That's so true. Um, and of course, you can sign up to our mailing list at www.projectstudiotbreak.com to get all the links to the ridiculous videos and things <laughs> that we collect together every month for you. Ridiculous and sublime. And of course, if you would like even more Project Studio goodness, mm-hmm. you can head over to our Patreon campaign where we have all sorts of extras. We have news about McDSP's APB16. We have lots more summer festival-related fun. Oh, goodness me. We have a bacon and tomato sandwich. And we ask, is Old Town Road really country music? (laughs) This feud will not die. It will not. And now Billy Ray Cyrus is involved. Yes, indeed. Anything to plug, John? This month, I'm beginning rehearsals for a uh, a new musical which is going up at the Watermill Theatre just west of London called The Wicker Husband. I'll be playing dulcimer, percussion, keys, guitars, various bits and pieces for that. And I promise not to eat Maltesers. (laughs) So if you Google The Wicker Husband, I believe advanced sales for that have just opened. How about you, Mike? You plugging anything this month? Um, not specially. I'm hoping that the website will actually be live by the time this podcast goes live. <laughs> I believe. I have a whole fresh bag of qualifiers. Um, thank you so much for <laughs> taking your tea break with us. Um, and until next time, to our pets. See you next month. Ooh.